Hello and welcome to another episode of Matafile, where this time we had the pleasure of talking to Mr. Subhash Gimre, who is the current editor-in-chief of the daily newspaper Republika Nepal. In our conversation, we cover the crucial role of the media in moderating democratic institutions, especially in developing countries. We talk about why a private and independent media is important, especially when other checks and balances on democracy rely on the government and the legislature for their daily wage. We also talk about development and why developmental aid provided by external sources is often ineffective in providing aid to those who need it most. All this and more in our conversation. Hello and welcome to this episode of Matfile. Well, we have the pleasure of being joined by Mr. Subhash Kimre, who has recently graduated with an MPP from Harvard and is currently the editor in chief of Republika Nepal, which is the leading daily newspaper in Nepal and is doing incredibly well in covering a lot of what is going on in Nepal today. Thank you so much for joining us today, sir. Thank you for having me. Yes. I want to start with the student protest that started a couple of months ago in response to Mr. Oli's response to COVID-19. because a lot of these students are describing the response as being inadequate can you just briefly tell us what the oli government's response to covid-19 has been and why there is so much political unrest among the student bodies particularly well to start with like lot of populist leaders around the world uh, prime minister oli basically dismissed the the severity of the virus um so he went to the parliament and in a lot of public forum he said you know this is just like a common flu it will just go away nepalese have a very strong immune system and you know will 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 handle this uh so but obviously now you've seen that the cases have been increasing uh, like anything um and so yeah, the hospitals are overwhelmed and the tests have not increased uh you know the people have to wait for days to receive their pcr uh, results so 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 all this came in the backdrop of the government dismissing this this virus early on um, you know they, they basically failed to manage the people coming in from india the nepalese workers who were in india and also a large number of them in the middle east so when they started coming in the government was not prepared to handle them you know so there there was no um, sufficient quarantine centers to hold them to test you know and to put them for for a few days instead they put them in buses and they send it to their villages so i think that sort of led to a widespread uh, widespread transmission of the of the virus um and so the the test did not increase and the the hospital systems were were not well prepared to to take care of, you know to take care of the people so that's why the young people demanded that you know the the right to free health has is guaranteed in the constitution is one of the fundamental rights enshrined in the constitution so the government better you know uphold that the spirit of the constitution so that was the basic demands of of the young people uh, during that protest and since the protest has the government actually responded to the protesters demands and increased testing capacities in nepal or have they still been in a deadlock of saying that no we don't have the capacity to expand our testing facilities well 
to start with, there was a lot of uh, controversies regarding the procurement of the medical equipment. So there was a bunch of groups that were involved and the media exposed the, the collusion between the politicians in the, in the government and the, these companies. So, so that sort of really, you know, gave the message that the government is not serious about uh, controlling this virus. Uh, and so the tests have, you know, to, if, I mean, it depends on what do you compare with. The tests have increased. I think it's around uh, 15, 20,000 right now. Uh, so initially it was, uh, I think, four or 5,000. But I think uh, given the, the severity of the virus and given that you, you have virus in every single district in the country, I think except for one or two districts, so the tests have not increased. Uh, even today, uh, this week, people in Kathmandu have to wait for, you know, at least five, six days to receive their PCR results. So in that sense, the tests haven't really uh, increased. And that's awful. So is the government, has the government set its own public enterprise up to create its own test and distribute its own tests? Or is it liaising it out to private companies that are producing the tests within Nepal or outside Nepal and then transporting them to government facilities? So they basically uh, call for in the, the bid, the open bids. Um, so the private companies in Nepal bid for it and then they import the test from outside and then they sell it to the government. So it's a long process and there's always controversy involved in this procurement uh, deals. You know, the, the people, the companies that are close to the government or the particular politician, uh, they end up getting these huge contracts and oftentimes the media have widely reported this, the price of these tests and other medical equipments uh, that was purchased by the government were way more expensive than you know, you'd normally find in the market. Okay, and what is the political opposition's response to this? So I think the first thing to clarify is, what does the political opposition in Nepal actually look like today? How strong are they in government? And surely they must have responded to this, especially if the prices of medicine and healthcare are going so high. Yeah. So Nepal Communist Party is in the government. They have a two-thirds majority, and not just in the, the federal parliament, but also in six of the seven uh, provinces. So in a sense, they basically control every sphere of the government. Um, so the, the opposition party, Nepali Congress, historically been a very strong party, but uh, they, are, uh, they are the majority, they are the opposition party in the, in the parliament and also in the provincial parliaments, but they have not been, uh, you know, sort of able to protest uh, the way that people expect an opposition party to do in a, in a democracy. So, you know, there's been some talks of, you know, the, the leader of the opposition party colluding with the prime minister's party in some political appointment. So there's some uh, quid pro quo happening. So that's why the, the party has not been very vocal about, uh, you know, the wrongdoings of the government. So, you know, there's a little bit um, confusion <laughs> uh, as to why they have not, you know, sort of really gone after the government's incompetence at this point. The opposition is, of course, one means to check the health of a democracy and the health of democratic institutions. And that seems to be failing in Nepal, given to things like corruption. What about other checks and balances on democratic institutions? What about things like the free judiciary and the freedom of press? Let's talk about the judiciary first. How robust is the free judicial system in Nepal? And how good is the judiciary at keeping a check on corruption or overpower being centered around the Communist Party in Nepal. What is the judiciary doing right now with, say, provision of healthcare 
And have there been any lawsuits filed by the public about general provision public health care or not? So historically, Nepal's judiciary has been quite independent and strong. You know, even during uh, King Ganendra's rule, uh, you know, some Supreme Court and the other courts made some daring decisions that sort of ultimately led to the fall of King Ganendra's regime. Um, so, you know, they have, you know, one of the branches of the government and, you know, the, their role and responsibilities, you know, clearly prescribed in the constitution. So, so in that sense, you know, they are pretty independent and, and, and strong. However, uh, so some of these appointments, the judicial appointments, they, obviously they are done by the government. And so we have not seen the level of, you know, the, the independence that we expect from a judiciary in, in a democracy, uh, you know, to say the least. Uh, so e even in the last few months, the, the, the Supreme Court has issued orders relating to the pandemic. Um, so just like, you know, a few weeks ago, they said that the government should carry out a free test, a PCR test of the people, which is, you know, the constitution guarantees of right to free health. Um, so just two days ago, the government said that they are not going to be able to cover the cost for PCR test, that people have to, you know, do it on their own. So the, the media have been, you know, blasting the government for, for that decision. So they are the ones who are violating the constitution and the, and the court's order. So, you know, the court keeps an order, but the government, a lot of time, they decide to ignore uh, the court's order also. So, so that, that has been a little bit uh, frustrating. Uh, so in terms of media, I think the private media is quite strong here. Just today, if you've noticed uh, that we had a powerful editorial uh, on the government's failure. So some of these big media houses in Nepal, they, uh, you know, since the democracy in the early 90s, they have been quite uh, effective and, and, you know, they, over the years, they have earned people's trust. So, so in that sense, they do speak for the people. They sort of carry on the sentiment of, of the people. Uh, but a lot of times, you know, the, we in the media feel like we are the, the only effective opposition in the country. For example, you know, the, the, the healthcare world, professionals working on the front line, the security people on the front lines. Uh, you know, the, our biggest festival started this week, uh, the festival of, you know, Dasai, Navaratri, they call it in India. So the, generally the people receive one month of extra uh, salary uh, during this time of the year. Uh, so what they did was all the ministers and the lawmakers, they received the bonuses for, for Dasai. But the people on the front line, the, the security people, the health professionals, they did not receive the money. So there was a huge um, outcry and the government decided that they're going to return that money and put that in the COVID uh, emergency fund. So it is only after the outcry and wide report, reporting that led to, to this, this, this pressure. So, the, uh, you know, we have not seen the kind of civil society that we used to have, you know, strong voices that could, you know, call out the government for their wrongdoings and sort of, you know, force them to, to make uh, changes. So that has sort of been missing, uh, especially after this government came to power. And why is it that the media is so uniquely powerful in a country like Nepal, where the government is perhaps ignoring the orders of the Supreme Court, but when you have small private media outlets voicing their opinions against injustices committed by the government, what makes them so uniquely powerful in overturning governmental decisions? 
Well, I think uh, there are quite a few things. One, um, the private media does not depend on government for its revenue sources. So it's largely the, you know, the advertisements from, you know, private sector. So, which is not controlled by the government. So they don't have to fear the repercussions from the government, one. Uh, the second, you know, uh, the freedom of the press inside the constitution. And thankfully, I think if you compare with other countries in South Asia, freedom of the press is quite uh, like a universally accepted in, in Nepal. That if there is an attack against a journalist or a, you know, media house, it's widely condemned and the political leaders generally don't, you know, want to, to make an enemy with, with the media here. So, uh, and, and, and I think there's a huge trust that people place on these, some of these uh, major media houses. And so that also forces the government to, to listen to what uh, the media is saying. So that also, I think it, it sort of developed after the 90s, uh, the restoration of democracy in the, in the 90s. And so that sort of, you know, carried on and Obviously, now you have so many other platforms, new online portals coming in, a lot of voices coming in from outside the Kathmandu also. So that all, you know, contributes to, to you know, to force the government to, to listen. Is there a public media outlet? So I know, for instance, in India, you have Doordarshan that is funded by the central government. Does Nepal also have a public media outlet? And how many people consume the public media outlet as opposed to private media outlets? Because obviously the public media is probably going to be cheaper. Mm -hmm. So, yes, we do have a public media. So we have Nepal Television. Uh, we have a daily newspaper, the, the state-owned daily newspaper, both in Nepal and English. But uh, very, very few people read the, the dailies. Uh, but quite a few people watch um, the television, Nepal Television. But, but mostly for other stuff than the news. So, so majority of the people, uh, they rely on private media houses like ours to uh, read news and to make views and you know, uh, also to, to, to voice their own, own concerns. So uh, it's sort of like the, the people don't believe what um, you know, the state-owned media says. You know, of course, it's a state-owned media, so you know, they will have nice things to say about the government. Uh, so if you look, if you listen to Nepal television news or, or Gorkha Patra Rising Nepal, you, you, you think that everything is, you know, good, well and good in the country. But on the other hand, if you read papers like ours, you know, you know, you will be scared. I think um, by now people know that, that in order to get the real information, you have to rely on, on the private uh, media outlets. Presumably, there is a multiplicity of private news houses and private journalism houses. And again, there must be some amount of competition among these news media outlets in dispensing the news and in increasing the consumer basis. How many firms are actually there that are reliable and trusted by the people? And what does this economic competition look like? Does it look like some people try decreasing prices or there is just better investigative journalism with some houses that gives them the edge? Well, I mean, I, I guess it depends, it's a, but comparatively small country. So um, you have, you know, majority of the big houses are in Kathmandu. And there are four or five big houses that have, you know, television, that have daily newspaper, both in English and Nepali, online, uh, you know, portals and video platforms and whatnot. So they, like these three, four media houses, they sort of lead the way in a sense. Um, and so obviously there is some competition, but I think overall 
you know, these, you could trust all these media houses and they do their own, own sorts of investigative journalism. And uh, once in a while, you, one paper comes out with a big story, the others follow and something. So it's, it's almost like, you know, the New York Times, Washington Post uh, dynamics. Um, so, so something like that um, here. That, that, that you see, you know, for example, with the Kantipur media and the Nepal Republic, like the media that, that I work for. Um, so other than that, uh, I think uh, there is a trust issue. It's a lot of online portals in the last few years, and that have also sort of uh, eroded the trust on, on media houses like ours. So they just put everyone in, in the one basket and say, oh, you media people, like the YouTubers, you know, they go out and interview all these scandals and <laughs> run these viral videos. And so that sort of also has an impact on the way people look at uh, the media industry and, and, and the journalist in, in particular. So everyone is a journalist in that sense, you know. So this YouTube guy is a journalist. I'm also a journalist. So for uh, an average Nepali, so he would say, you know, he would not trust either of us. So I think slowly people are understanding that. Uh, I always try to give an example of, you know, when we started having cell phones, we used to get a lot of missed calls. You know, we hardly get missed calls these days. So I think it's, it's the time will sort of heal this in a way, you know, so people will learn to consume media uh, responsibly. And then I think uh, it will be a while before we reach the, to that point. Are there particular demographics that distrust the media more than others? So is it like older people mistrusting new media more than maybe younger people? Or do older people read more daily news than younger people? Is there a demographic divide? And what does that look like? Well, from what we know, you know, that, that we keep on monitoring our back end. Um, so, a lot of these, so I think there's a, a different Democrats have different uh, news interest. Um, so in our case, if you look at the younger demographics, like people in the below 25, they're more into like tech and entertainment and sports and, you know, study abroad things and, you know, environmental issues. If you look at the, a little bit older, you know, in arts and literature and politics. Uh, so, so, so there's a real divide. Uh, and generally speaking, you know, the young people, they tend to be, you know, they tend to keep themselves away from politics. But I think that has been changing through, like you started this program with asking me about the, the protest. So if you look at the photos and videos of the protest, like most of these people, kids, they are very, very young, young people in their high school and in, in, in colleges. Uh, and and they are, most of them also grew up in, in, in cities like Kathmandu. So that tells a lot about how, you know, the demographic is changing, how their interest is changing and how they're looking at the government and the performance of, of, of the, the people in, in power. So, so I think uh, overall, uh, we tend to think that the older people are interested in politics and young people aren't. But I think that is also slowly changing here. That's promising. And do you think that there is going to be a political party that comes up and is propped up by young people that stands for maybe ideals like anti-corruption that provides a third way out from the current Communist Party and the current opposition that seems to be in cahoots with the current uh, Communist Party? Well, there have been some attempts. If you look at uh, Nepal's history, in every 10, 15 years, we have had some sort of political changes, some sort of revolutions. So the last one was in 2006. So it's, it's been more than you know, 10 years. And there's been a lot of dissatisfaction with the government's performance, with the role of the opposition party in the parliament. So the people are obviously looking for alternatives. And 
one or there were one or two political parties that were formed in the last few years, and they did make some impressive, uh, you know, gains in in the in the election last time around. Uh, so there is some hope, and people are rooting for them, in a sense that you know, if they stand for a corruption-free Nepal, if they stand for good governance, if they stand for you know development, that people people are waiting to see if they are real, you know, people are waiting to see if they if they mean what they you know promise uh, to the people uh, so so you know um, and 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 i would say that majority of the people in nepal are swing voters so not a single party has won two general elections consecutively so so that says a lot about you know how people vote so that people are watching very carefully and we'll have election another general election in uh, two and a half years so we'll have to wait and see, but you know, there's there's some impressive people involved in, in in these new parties, and we'll have to see. And also, I think this COVID will change a lot of things. You know, a lot of these Nepali migrant workers working in India, working in the Middle East, they are coming back, and and these are young people. You know, you know, most of these people are uh, below forty. So you know, they have seen the world, and you know, when they come back, you know, they come with these you know experiences. And hopefully that will also inform their decisions in, in, in the coming elections also. So yeah, there is there's definitely space for alternative force and there are some promising people involved and we'll just have to wait and see. So we've spoken a bit about private media and then we've spoken a bit about the public media. I want to talk about a third fact, a faction of media outlets that are present in Nepal about foreign media. What is the presence of foreign media news houses and foreign media sources in Nepal? And how many people actually consume foreign media Maybe that comes from places like the BBC or even more local television, like from India and the NDTV. So we, so our house prints the New York Times. So we get the New York Times every day here. Um, we have a BBC Nepali service here that airs uh, programs in the morning and in the evening. It's a radio ser- service. And of course, we get all the Indian channels here. Uh, so, but I think... Uh, People do consume a lot of Indian news. Uh, more than that, they also consume in the movies and other entertainment stuff here. Um, since almost everyone understands Hindi, they speak speak Hindi, so culturally very intertwined with with India. But there's, I would say, there's a huge influence of international media here. We we also consume, you know, CNN and BBC television also. Um, so, you know, people in, especially in, in urban areas, well-informed, uh, they know what's happening uh, outside of our borders and, uh, you know, uh, there's a huge influence of that. Because something good happens outside and we immediately start, you know, comparing to, to our situation here. Um, so, yeah, I would say, you know, we have a decent uh, influence of international media here. Do you think that sometimes this influence can be harmful? For instance, I think last month I saw a report from Kathmandu Post about uh, Chinese settlements in the Humla region in the north of Nepal, which was violating Nepali-China borders and the current border agreement that is present between Nepal and China. But presumably the only place that was cited in that news report was actually an Indian news media outlet that didn't actually have factual knowledge. So in times like this, do you think that foreign news media can actively be harmful for informing Nepali people as to what's going on in their own borders? I think there's a context to that news that you refer to. We haven't had the best of relations with India in the last few years. I, I don't know how 
how much you're following on on the Nepal India border tensions, but uh, Nepal you know amended its constitution and included um, you know Limpia Dura into its uh, in, into its map, which India claims it's theirs and Nepal claims it's uh, it's ours. So after that, there has been a series of news in especially in Indian media, some of the questionable Indian media that you know the Chinese have also encroached our border in the in the uh, uh, along our northern border. So that news was quickly debunked by the government as the fake news because it was uh, issued, supposedly issued by, uh, I don't know, Ministry of Agriculture or something. And then, you know, survey department within the Ministry of Agriculture. I mean, that's so, you know, hard to believe, you know. So I think the, uh, uh, that media house had to retract that news later on. Even this week, we saw some of these reportings in India uh, not on the some of the main major media houses that we tend to, to to read, but some of these other other houses. So that sort of sometimes I think creates trouble for us here. So so we have to be mindful of what we're consuming, you know, what we're reading also. And obviously we we are situated in a very you know interesting uh, geopolitical you know landscape here with India and China uh, not having the best of relations at this point. So I think we have to be very careful on on the kind of news that we consume from both from you know Indian media and also from from Chinese media here. And you mentioned fake news and fake news is of course a buzzword nowadays in Western media, especially given the US elections and Donald Trump's rhetoric about fake news itself. Uh, what are the checks and balances that are present in Nepal against fake news? So again, you mentioned earlier about how everyone is a journalist these days with sources like YouTube and Facebook being widely popular and widely read. Um, how do people check against fake news and how do people know what news to trust in Nepal today? You know, generally speaking, some of these trusted big media houses, they tend to do quite well. You know, they have their own verification processes and, you know, they try their best and obviously they are not perfect. But, uh, you know, in the last few years, there have been some good uh, uh, fact-checking initiatives, uh, obviously the private initiative that have done quite a good job of sort of pointing out the errors in some of these major media outlets that we have made mistakes and they have pointed that out and we have been, you know, very receptive to such um, initiative and we have also, you know, made changes. So I think that has definitely alerted us and, and sort of reminded us our responsibility to, you know, verify and to verify and to verify these, uh, this information. Um, so other than that, I think it's, it's, a, it's the people because you know, you have, I think the latest count was 40,000 plus online news portals. Um, so, you know, obviously you can't uh, ensure that all these provide, you know, accurate information. So ultimately it's the people who decide on what to consume, how to consume. Um, and so, you know, they will have to make their own choices, I guess. And I think our press council can do a much better job than than they are doing at this point to sort of, you know, have some directives, especially for all these online portals so that, you know, they don't mislead uh, the, the, the public. I have a feeling that these, these private initiatives will expand and also the media houses themselves will, will sort of institute some, you know, better measures to sort of uh, check against uh, some of these fake news. You, of course, refer to a very constructive process where a fact-checking agency tells you that you've printed something that is wrong and you've been humble enough to accept that critique and then retract news or change news in the way that is factually accurate. 
But what about censorship, which is probably the extreme end when someone just doesn't accept that their news is fake news or their news is factually incorrect? How strong is censorship in Nepal and who executes censorship in Nepal? How is it, uh, how is it affected in the public's domain today? Well, so, so let's see. I mean, I think, um, you know, press council is the, the government authority that oversees uh, in the publications, uh, the, the media here. But I think, uh, I mean, because, you know, the, the freedom of the press is enshrined in the constitution, um, there, there were some attempts to pass uh, bills in the parliament that sort of vaguely refer to different forms of censorship that you know, the media fraternity came out strongly against and they, you know, sort of the government had to retract those, those proposed uh, changes. Uh, other than that, I think there is, uh, for, I mean, I'm just talking about, I'm just generalizing, you know, especially for these big media houses, there's very little censorship from the government, uh, to be honest. Uh, but I think it's hard to tell when the, you know, the media houses themselves are a little bit, you know, careful of what to run and what not to run. I think that is the most dangerous part because, you know, when you don't report something, something big that implicates people in power or those close to power, you know, that does not serve democracy well, that does not serve people well. So I think uh, some, some, we see some of those instances here once in a while, but that's not a wide phenomenon especially with the big media houses. And that sounds very promising. So I think a question to conclude this segment of the interview would just be, what is the role therefore, if there is low censorship from the government on media houses, of the media in assuring social development in Nepal, especially when it comes to things like human rights broaches or uh, problems with managing individual rights of people when it comes to the government? What is the role of the media then in improving source, in, in improving society and quality of life in Nepal? So I think a, a lot of times the you know the the media that sets light on a particular issue, you know, we've seen the government take action, be it the federal government or provincial or the local government. I mean that's that's quite good. Um, you know, a lot of times you know when something happens like a police brutality, for example. Um, and then, you know, the media houses, they, they do their own investigative pieces and it comes out and, you know, there's some, you know, some outrage and the police or the government sort of form an investigative committee or, you know, do something about it. So, so that, that's quite good. So I think uh, generally the government has been deceptive on, on, on social issues when we report on, on, on some of these big social issues, especially like we have, you know, the untouchability issues. Uh, still we see people being murdered on these cases uh, you know a few months ago one young boy was was murdered uh, in, in a remote part of the country because he wanted to marry a girl uh, from, from a higher caste so so that sort of created a huge uproar here there were protests and stuff so you know uh, when you know media reports on these issues it does create a difference. It does. It does make make a difference. Uh, same thing with you know other issues, other social issues also. So I think uh, they are they are more receptive than than you know say you write against you, know, you expose a big corruption, a big scandal involving ministers. <laughs> they probably unless it's it's really damaging, 
if I don't listen to you, but but some of these human rights issues and social issues that affect the people, they, are, they tend to be quite uh, receptive. And just switching track slightly here, because you have both worked on local initiatives to develop Nepal, including things like a library initiative, an initiative to supply water, and an initiative to build schools for underprivileged people or people that don't have access to education. But you've also worked with the United Nations as part of the UNRISD. What is the difference of international organizations that provide humanitarian aid versus local enterprises that provide social development in helping collectively develop a country like Nepal? So I think there's a little bit of disconnect. You know, I, I work in Geneva and then I work in my, in my village in Western Nepal also. So I think that local needs that we, we often feel, even in Kathmandu, you know, the policymakers, even we people working in, 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 the, in newspapers, we, a lot of times we miss these real pictures on the ground, you know. We, maybe sometimes we tend to read too much into it or sometimes we don't read to, we don't, you know, sort of explore the way it should be. Um, so I think the local needs are entirely different. You know, the kind of education that the people need, the kind of support that, you know, the farmers, for example, need, uh, the kind of initiatives that, you know, the, the local people need to, to change some of these, you know, bad social systems and, and things like that. So, you know, we can make laws here in Kathmandu, we can sound big here, but when it goes to implementing these things on the ground, I think we have to be mindful of local culture, local customs, language, in the people involved in so I think this it's a lot more complex and we need more of a local experience to to work and to to affect that change at the at the lowest level so I think this it needs more dedication honesty and you know real understanding of of issues uh, on the ground we feel that there's often a disconnect uh, between the policymakers in Kathmandu for example and you know the, the, the real needs and the people on the ground and is this true even in large calamities like the 2014 earthquake that happened and destroyed large parts of Nepal and caused mass death and mass destruction of homes and livelihoods? Was relief then also directed towards urban centers like Kathmandu or was the UNDP and the WHO coming in and helping people in rural areas as well? So I think a lot of people rushed to help where they had access, like for example, access to road. So people living nearby the roads, they receive a lot of support initially. And the people who are you know, off the grid, uh, they were left with nothing. Um, so I think it, it took the government and other people and other organizations a while for, to, you know, to, to really figure out, oh, you know, that's, that's where we need to focus our energy and resources on. So uh, I, mean, I think that's the, that's the tragedy of you know, a developing countries, especially with a very difficult topography like ours. You know, it's a mountainous country and lots of hills. You know, transportation isn't very smooth here. So that also creates a lot of uh, you know, difficulties in, in delivering some services, especially during uh, you know, emergencies. Uh, and also like you've seen in the monsoon, in a lot of floods and landslides and you know, hundreds of people get uh, killed and a lot of time it takes you know, days for even the security people to reach there and, and you know, carry out rescue operations. And so, yeah, they definitely that, that divide that, that we see. And it's, it's especially worse, you know, even the, the pandemics like this one, uh, you know, the people in the cities are you know, getting some sort of care, 
but think of the people in remote villages if they get sick you know the hospitals are way you know far uh, you know they by the time they are in the district hospitals or the provincial hospitals they you know sadly end up dying so so it there is that that you combine with difficult topography and bad transportation network and it's pretty lethal for for people living on the margins is there a political will from policymakers in Kathmandu to improve connectivity across Nepal, so to build roads to these remote places where there are settlements? And are the people in these remote areas politically involved? Do they actively exercise their right to vote or are they disenfranchised? Are they structurally disenfranchised and kept outside the political system? So the local, local government, so the, the lowest tier of the government, the local government, they have been interested with vast power, you know, they can decide on education, health, and local infrastructures. So in the last two or three years of this new new system, uh, you know, they have dug roads everywhere, but that comes with a price. You know, they, it's not a, a proper road to start with. It's, you know, it, the engineers aren't involved. It's just the local people, you know, okay, let's dig the road from here, you know, if it, it has to go through my house and my land and stuff. So, you know, come monsoon and, you know, just washes off everything. So that has created a lot of problem. And, you know, the roads close for three, four months during the monsoon. And, you know, when people get sick, there's no way out. So, yes, they do build roads but to connect to the, the major highways and, uh, you know, the local other major roads. But that that has to be sustainable. That has to be well designed in a sense that it, the engineers have to be involved. Uh, oftentimes that doesn't happen. Uh, the local leaders, the local elected people, they buy the the equipment and they start digging the road because they can make money of that. So, so it's it's a little bit uh, tragic in that sense. And while you know, there's a lot of money has been invested in infrastructure development, that has not been, you know, sort of well spent. And do you think China is going to help improve infrastructure development, especially given Nepal's relation with the Belt and Road Initiative? Do you think? the Chinese infrastructure development is going to be geared towards just major urban centers in Nepal? Or do you think the trickle-down effect of that is also going to be a better transportation network for everyone in Nepal? You know, we don't know what will happen with BRI. You know, um, we have uh, the, the MCC, the Millennium Challenge Grant, a $500 million grant from the U.S. government that has not been passed by the parliament. Same thing with the BRI, the, the Chinese government, they have been requesting for projects under BRI for almost two plus years now. And that the government, our government has not been able to provide them the list of the projects that we want, you know, to be included under BRI projects. So I think the China also wants to invest in big projects, uh, you know, big hydro projects or national highways or railways and uh, big ports that connects to major economic centers than the villages. And also, I think the government also wants these people because our settlements are scattered. So it's very costly for us to, you know, carry out any development projects. So the, the government also trying to see, you know, if we can build different economic centers and different cities, big mega cities, then people will come to these cities. So we'll have you know, easier time mapping out stuff and 
developing infrastructure, needed infrastructure. So, so we don't know what will happen with BRI. We don't know what projects the government will will include in uh, under BRI projects. And I would assume that it will be more uh, centered around urban centers and economic centers, and also you know that can connect big market in India, and also with uh, you know the the transport network uh, that connects to China. What are the current biggest needs in Nepal as far as rural development is concerned? So what do these rural populations need most and what do they need most urgently from either policymakers or from foreign institutions to help them develop their own economy and maybe scale up their own economies? So I think to start with, the farmers struggle to get a good price for their goods. So there, there, there has to be a reliable road networks. You know, that is well functional you know around the year i think that will make a huge difference the electrification has been quite impressive in the last few years but it, it again there's a question of reliability until a few years ago we used to have 14 15 16 hours of power cut off but that has been solved but i think now the issue is reliability sometimes you know the, the power just goes off uh, so so we need to improve on that we need to we need a better road network and also i think uh, now we need you know better hospitals and schools in, in rural places because a lot of these people who go to the Middle East or India to work, they send their kids and families to district headquarters or provincial centers so that they can, you know their kids can go to a good school there. So I think there's huge demand for for a better education and a decent uh, health system. So the basics that we often you know take it for granted in the in the Western world. We've spoken about a lot of things so far, about the media, about some degrees of corruption, and then of course about development. In a nutshell, what according to you is the biggest problems that Nepali democracy is facing today? And how do you think we can solve that? Well, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> so I think, you know, um, even in my lifetime, I saw so many big political changes. So in any country's history, this would be unthinkable in one person's lifetime. You know, we, I was born under King's autocracy, which I hardly remember, you know, and then we had a democracy in the, in the 90s. You know, I grew up in, uh, in democracy. And then, you know, the, the king decided to take over back in 2001, which, you know, failed miserably. And then we had the Maoist war in 1996. That sort of went on for 10 years and then the war ended in 2006. The monarchy was gone, a new system, new constitution, you know, entirely a new political setup. Um, so, so we've seen a lot of things, uh, you know. So this, this democracy needs to work. So if we keep on changing this system, you know, every five, 10 years, so we don't like this, let's go. That will never help us. So I think, I feel like, you know, as frustrating as it might be, I think we have to give some time for the system to, to settle down and to let it work. Otherwise, we never know if this was a good system or a bad system for us. Uh, it's, it's, it's hardly been, you know, uh, uh, so 2015, we came out with the constitution in 2015. We had election two and a half years ago. Now all, people are already talking about next revolution, next, next, you know, next kind of political setup here. So, you know, that sounds very appealing. That sounds exciting to the people. But will that really, you know, solve our needs? Like we talked about earlier, you know, poverty, 22% of people living in, you know, poverty, you know, things like that. So, so I feel like 
we ha we have to be a little bit patient with 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 the system that we have right now, and then see you know if, if it works and eventually if it does not, then I think there's always option for for you know us to opt for a different different system. But that sounds quite promising, and I do agree that the, the constitution does need some time to check whether how strong it is and how well it can be upheld, considering it's only been five years since the constitution was drafted and accepted. I think one last question that I have for you is, what are some good book recommendations or media recommendations, other than, of course, Republica Nepal, because I would urge everyone to read it. But what other media and books could you recommend for people to better understand democracy in Nepal, development in Nepal, or even just about the state of media in Nepal today? Well, I would definitely recommend following some of these major media outlets in, in, in Nepal, Republica, Kathmandu Post, you know, uh, the Himalayan Times, this Annapurna Express, uh, this weekly uh, Nepali Times, you know. Um, so some of these major media outlets, they do a pretty good job of sort of, you know, giving you the, the picture of what's happening in the country. Uh, in terms of the books, I, I, I really have to think of the English books that, you know, that are written on Nepal and Nepali politics. There have been some books like, you know, The Strategy for Survival by Leo Rose. Uh, it's a quite good book to really understand the historical context. Uh, there's another book called The Silent Spring, again by a Westerner. There's there's a, a series of book by the book by a Nepali uh, historian, a history of Nepal. So that sort of captures Nepal's long history and sort of its transition to different systems, and that gives a pretty good idea of of country, people, and and culture. And there's there's some uh, novels that have been written um, in the recent years, like Samrat Upadhyay's few novels that are quite good to, to give you a better understanding of, of our literature, art and culture and history. Um, so yeah, I, uh, if you're interested in Nepal and you can, you can find these resources quite easily. Excellent. And I would recommend reading up the Republica Nepal editorial that came out earlier today on why the, why the government in Nepal has failed because it is an excellent editorial and gives you an excellent context as to why people are actually agitated against Oli's government today. Thank you so much for joining us today, Subhash. This has been incredibly useful and incredibly informative. Thank you, Sam, and good luck with your work. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m., and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com Step into the world of power loyalty and luck i'm gonna make him an offer he can't refuse with family cannolis and spins mean everything now you want to get mixed up in the family business introducing the godfather at chumpacasino.com test your luck in the shadowy world of the godfather slot someday i will call upon you to 
do a service for me. Play the Godfather. Now at ChampaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.